Robert Gross is a historian at the University of Connecticut and the recent author of The Transcendentalists and Their World. This is Robert Gross. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, I am here with Robert Gross. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Glad to be here. Uh, so you've written this book that came out recently, The Transcendentalists and Their World. Uh, and I'm curious, just starting off here, um, th- this is not a, a massive book, but in terms of the amount of research that went into it, um, and I know you had this earlier database that you built up from a previous book, The Minutemen and Their World, um, but it, it must have taken a lot of time and effort um, to produce this book. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, just starting off, uh, why, what interested you in this subject? Why did you feel that this was something worth exploring? Well, two reasons. One, when I was in college, I took a course in American civilization, a survey that in the first semester went from English settlement and the Puritans to the eve of the Civil War. And we looked at the Puritans as a community-minded collectivist society. And Concord, Massachusetts was a prime case. And then you move to Emerson and Thoreau, and you have the virtual opposite, the home of individualism in America. And I thought at the time, huh, how does one place go from the Puritan city on a hill to Thoreau at Walden Pond by himself? And so that that notion always attracted me. The second um, real engagement uh, came from just reading Walden. It's clear from the very epigraph to, to the end of the book, Thoreau is speaking frequently to his neighbors and he's drawn on the life of Concord uh, to illustrate uh, his critiques of the society he lives in and the potential of the nature all around him. And I, I always thought, huh, I, w- I wonder whether we should take his criticisms as accurate observation or tied to his own uh, uh, intellectual, ideological perspective. Um, what's the conquered that we might see if we didn't look at conquered through Thoreau's gaze? We could be interested in things Sorrow was interested in, but maybe there were other perspectives on it. Uh, he talks a lot to his neighbors to when he's living at Walden to date to the French Canadian woodchopper, and he looks at the cellar holes of former uh, black residents of the Walden Pond area. Who were they? What were their lives like? How did they connect to Henry? So those are the two springs of the study. Yeah, and it's interesting about Concord, Massachusetts, because, of course, uh, they have this really, um, they, they played a, a crucial role in the Revolutionary War. Um, and when uh, Thoreau and Emerson are, are growing up, Emerson was obviously a Boston transplant, but um, there is still this feeling of connectedness to the revolution, which, as you point out in the book, was based on common goals and these transcendentalists were much more centered on the individual. Um, I'm curious, the, the question I want to ask you here is, um, you describe in this book all these big changes going on, uh, like globalization, where for the first time, a lot of these farmers are buying things from county stores that uh, the goods are supplied from all over the world. And these very self-reliant, self-sufficient people 
uh, suddenly very interdependent. Um, nature is being boxed in by the Industrial Revolution. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, in any way, do you see kind of like the romantics? Do you see the transcendentalists as being uh, partly like a, a movement based on nostalgia? Um, actually, no, I don't think it's nostalgia. Um, they certainly are critical again in terms of the constraints and and, and closing. But Emerson and Thoreau are also part of a movement that's deeply critical of the world they've inherited. So they see uh, the world of the fathers and grandfathers, the revolutionary fathers, as, you know, on the one hand, they'll praise the coming of American independence, but, but they'll um, talk about the traditions and constraints, the hierarchies and inequalities that they've inherited. Uh, in the book, I describe the world they inherit from the 18th century, early 19th century, as a world of inherited institutions and, and involuntary associations. Uh, a world where people are frequently, say on the farm, urged to farm the way their fathers and grandfathers did, you know, follow in their footsteps, keep the farm in the family and raise their children so they'll um, accept the inherited ways. Uh, Emerson knows some of that world because he's still living, he comes of age in it. For Emerson, that would have, that meant being urged constantly to become a minister like his father and grandfather and all the way back to the Puritan settlement. So there's a rebellion against what had been in terms of its constraints, but there's also a reaction against the world that's to be of global capitalism, of mass political parties and mass popular populist politics, a world of um, large-scale voluntary associations and benevolent societies. Um, this is the time of year in which we all get numerous fundraising uh, appeals from one large organization after another. Emerson looked at those and he said, you know, those are big bureaucratic organizations that are as interested in amassing um, you know, huge numbers of supporters and great deals, you know, great amounts of donations. The same way the political parties gather up mass votes and, you know, um, and uh, raise money as much as they can. From this perspective, Emerson, you could say, is dialectical. He's he can see what he um, is critical of in the past and simultaneously see what's unappealing in the present. And yet, the one thing is that Emerson's critique and Thoreau's critique are of all the forces that see, will limit the possibilities of the individual to realize his or her, her own intellectual, spiritual potential, their inf infinite divine potential. So all that critique is in the interest of enabling the individual to um, be uh, something new under the sun. And that commitment to the individual is part of the new order that's coming to being. Hmm. It's the very fulcrum by which the old order, on which the old order comes apart. 
And there are some people who try to map on like Thoreau and Emerson's politics onto the present day. And there's uh, famous quotes from like Thoreau, like the, you know, they say, oh, the government that governs, uh, you know, least is the best government of all. Or right. something like, how about the government that governs not at all is the best. And um, mm -hmm. modern day American libertarians kind of embrace that. Um, is there any way to to sort of map their politics to the present day or does it just not compute that's a great question i just published a short commentary essay on just this theme um and one level you could say you know thorough in asserting that govern governs best that governs least sounds like a modern libertarian i was like here's a guy who's going to oppose vaccine mandates and require things there are two problems with that idea one is modern libertarians may insist on the right of individuals to make their own decisions, but seldom they ever outline a theory of the individual. Why should we care about the individual? In the 19th century, most of the claims for greater individual freedom were done on the grounds that individuals know their own self-interest better than anyone else. Or uh, maybe we should grant the individual freedom because you can be born again and converted to Christ and will you have a spiritual self. But Emerson and Thoreau rejected revealed religion and rejected the notion of self-interest as the key to the individual. What they saw was that every individual had a divine potential. I think of it this way. Today, we would talk about, if we want to talk about what we all have in common universally, we'd say we share a common human nature. But for Emerson and Thoreau, we all share a common divinity beyond a common humanity. And that divinity, Emerson would summarize as we all have a soul, a universal mind, our portion of it. And that gives us access to uh, a an inf infinite possibility to realize a self um, that can be of enormous benefit in our own creative expression and to humanity as a whole. So from that perspective, um, the commitment to the individual absorbs democracy and equality as standards and ideals. Emerson says, for example, the moment you accept the doctrine of one soul, that moment slavery comes to an end. There's just no possible rationale for slavery if you think that every child born is something new under the sun. Um, likewise, he was pressed to realize if you say that we all have one soul and infinite possibility, why should women be subordinate? Why should they be confined to some roles and not others? So Emerson's vision of the soul enables him to imagine the individual simultaneously realizing the self and being of higher service to humanity. And the libertarian case seldom is made for what service to humanity is realized by virtue of giving the individual freedom. It tends to be much more of a negative case of look at all the oppressions that government or large institutions can uh, impose on people, but not on 
who were the people being imposed on? Interesting. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, Emerson having, um, you know, his father and grandfather being a preacher and what you're talking about just now about this uh, example of everyone having a, a common divinity. Um, it, 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 how much in common uh, does this transcendental belief uh, in this like very individual and very personal communion with the divine, um, how much in common does that have with the, the, the Protestant notion that um, salvation comes through personal faith alone? Are these kind of the same thing or no? Um, it's certainly uh, that notion is a precursor for Emerson's spiritual individualism. The difference is, is that Emerson ends up rejecting revealed religion. And he does so by saying, you don't need a Bible to know that there's a God. Walk in the woods, go to Walden Pond, and you'll feel that there's something larger. And when you feel or look at the sky at night, you know, feel the awe that you'll experience and the grandeur of everything around you. If you feel that, Emerson will say, you know that there's a divinity to which you're connected. I mean, it's, it's you know, nature religion, not revealed religion. And from this perspective, he catches up what was a, a fundamental contradiction in liberal Protestantism, what we came to call Unitarianism. And that is, you could know that there's a God because you know it by looking at nature, how ordered it is, what a planet is, or that you feel a connection to it. But we also have the New Testament, which is revealed um, religion in the story of Christ. If you reject the New Testament and old, then the only thing you have is the basis of your religion. It's not church organization. It's not a discipline. It's an individual sen sensing that there's something larger. And Emerson would insist that the only real uh, faith is the faith you've experienced personally. Mm. So if you've now rejected any Bible and the essence of religion lies in individual experience and judgment, from the point of view of the opponent, this is anarchy. Everybody's his own preacher. Everyone's got his own God. And you're now hearkening back to the great awakening of the 18th century, which was opposed by much of the Protestant establishment in New England. What, what was, when you talk about the great awakening, can you describe that uh, a little bit more detail? Sure, so this is a movement in from the 1720s to the 1740s um, in New England, but then spreading through much of the colonies uh, of ordinary people um, coming to reject uh, an ordered religion that consisted of, you know, going to worship services and hearing the gospel preached. Um, but many people feeling that there was no real connection between the words and their own personal experience that they needed, they wanted preachers that spoke to the soul, that ravished the soul with their words, uh, that made the old Calvinism or, or in variations on it feel like pertinent to your life, that um, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, you know, preached um, each, you know, eternal damnation if you weren't saved by Christ. 
And many people then attacked uh, preachers who emphasized only orderly living. That, that is, the tension always was there in Protestantism between, you know, you've got to live a moral life. The Bible commands you to. But you might live a moral life because you want to go to jail, not because you have any goodness in your heart. So the tension has always been, unless you're born again, you'll never have the love of the good for its own sake. You'll only have the love of good because it's in your self-interest to be good. So only, the only way to be truly say, uh, um, faithful is to be born again in Christ so you can begin to appreciate virtue, selflessness for their own sake. You're human, so you never will completely. But that's in sharp contrast to the preachers who, while never saying that just being good will get you into heaven, will say, if you're perfecting yourself in goodness in the course of your life, it might be a sign that you're one of the saved as you grow in grace. And so that's the tension in the Protestant tradition in New England and much of early America um, basically takes you down the road to the breakup of um, religious establishments in the new American nation. And then with the transcendentalists, um, they're the left wing of Unitarianism. Essentially, they agree you can grow in grace, and, but then they end up rejecting um, the New Testament as the guy. And their critics among the Unitarians finally said, what are you, crazy? Right. Everybody announces their own religion. This is anarchy. And Emerson said, it can't be anarchy if you trust the, the God that's in nature and in you is always aiming at your ideal possibilities and has a moral law built into it. Slavery is wrong. Inequality limits. Yeah, it, it's... It's a beautiful idea, and I'm curious, why do you think that this insistence on having this personal, individual experience with the divine is it became such an issue in America? Because, I mean, I, I know there are all kinds of religious wars and stuff like that going on in Europe, but they don't really seem to be of this particular nature. Like, why well, is that? Not, not exactly. Emerson is drawing his ideas, as were such figures as George Ripley, the founder of Brook Farm, the utopian community, Orestes Brownson, who was uh, a radical uh, Unitarian before ultimately he converts to Catholicism and founds his own order. Um, they were drawing their ideas from the German romantics, from Kant and, and, and his successors. And it's from them, as well as British idealists, um, Coleridge and Wordsworth, and especially from Carlyle, that the Americans are drawing their ideas. And the Germans are the first to lay out the critique that reason isn't just an empirical facility. It's a built-in set of categories in the mind. And that we have, you know, if, if you can um, sense that there's a God, that is, if you have religious sentiment, how did you get it? It must have been planted in you, in all humanity, by a divinity. So that 
we have in, in the, this view an innate uh, openness to the, to the divinity within. And those ideas are developed in Germany as a critique of the Enlightenment, a critique that becomes especially compelling after Napoleon's wars. So there are many Germans who are um, and were quite unhappy with French domination, who also are trying to find the answers to the question of how do we then reorganize ourselves? And these, uh, the German philosophical tradition is then powerful and the French pick up on these ideas as well. So it's European ideas, but one thing that is distinct is the Americans link them far more than anyone else to individualism and democracy. In Britain, Thomas Carlyle ends up a reactionary, even though he's a great thinker and defender of the individual. But it's more the kind of individual is aristocrat of the spirit. Hmm. Was Carlyle, was he the guy who uh, had the great man theory of history? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, and there's, you know, you can see within Emerson's thought the potential for a kind of great man notion. Emerson would say everyone can be a great man, great person. Um, but in so as Emerson is celebrates individuals who are true to themselves and who resist limitation and follow their own course to the highest possibility. And in Emerson's view, that can be anybody. And in his lectures on the philosophy of history, Emerson begins by saying, why is history always so boring? This hurt me as a historian. Why is history so boring? And um, it's because it's always about kings and aristocrats um, and popes and not about the masses of ordinary people who are invisible in history. You know, they're the swarm, the mass. It's his mission to summon people out of the mass to imagine themselves as individuals who themselves could be divine. And in that light, then the individual um, can stand at the center of history. And as Emerson reconceives um, philosophy, he says, for generations, for millennia, it was accepted that a shining social prosperity was the end of man. And society, and, and it was common to sacrifice the individual to the state. But now he says we recognize that the individual is the fundamental unit of society and it is for the education and guardianship of every man, every person, that society exists. Emerson's flipped the entire understanding of social order. One of the things that's interesting to me, interesting to me as I read your book and as we're talking about this now is um, how the transcendentalists in a lot of way, uh, ways are still with us. And you see sort of like reverberations and like, especially like literary history in America. Did, did you see a lot of commonalities between them and, and like the beat poets? 
Yeah, I think you're right. It's not something I really worked on. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, hold Fair forth enough. very much on, on this. Um, you know, I was, you know, my goal has always been first as a professor to look at of history, to look at people in their own context, but try to explicate what I come to understand in ways that I think uh, can speak to us today, whether we accept them or not. And from one point of view, it hardly matters whether we accept them. Those people have been dead a long time ago. Question is how we want to live in our time right. and what we draw on as the heritage of past times. Fair enough. And speaking of that, that context, by the way, um, and as you were mentioning how a lot of these ideas were drawn from Europe, um, I'm curious. I, I remember reading something about Henry James, who was born uh, a little bit after Emerson, um, that even in his day, there was this sort of inferiority complex about American culture uh, apropos Europe. Um, was that something that uh, played a role in the, the, the development of the transcendentalists uh, wanting to sort of like assert an American identity? Yeah. And uh, let me just, the first part, we, we haven't talked about it. I don't know that we need to in terms of what I've written. You know, Emerson and Thoreau are also reading uh, works by uh, Asian writers in, in, in the Western discovery of Hindu religion, of Confucian, a whole range of religious traditions. So it's not just the Western tradition. But um, I, I would say that Just remind me quickly. I suddenly no, um, no, um, your your question. The, the sort of inferiority complex. Yeah, um, right. So on that, yeah. So on on the inferiority complex. The key to this is that when Americans were um, full of Anglophilia, and through the nineteenth century, it's an Anglophilia that is bound up with an admiration for British culture in its aristocratic and unequal um, values. So to the extent that American writers sought to write on a British model, they're imagining a literature about society that's hierarchical, that's aspiring to be approved by people who think that the elite should set the standards of taste, not common readers. And um, Emerson and, and Thoreau and others are rejecting the notion of the orientation to the English because they want to write in a style that's, in their terms, uh, more original, less rule-bound, less imitative, and open to the experience of ordinary people in America and uh, you know, in a language and style that will be read by ordinary people in America. When you read Emerson today or Thoreau's, especially Thoreau's early chapters, you might say, huh, you give this to high school students and they have trouble reading it. How is this written for ordinary people? Um, and I think the answer is they hope to uh, speak to ordinary people in language that they could understand but not in a style that, uh, what can we say, looked down on them and, and degraded themselves. Remember, these are writers who went to Harvard, right. highly educated in a world where a tiny 
proportion of the American population has a college education. Uh, so, but Emerson was particularly critical, as was Thoreau, of the conditions of literature in, in which writers sought out a mass public. Because they saw that with the uh, waning of patrons who would support artists and writers uh, to celebrate their courts, with the decline of, pay, uh, of patrons, you have writers now um, seeking to support themselves um, by writing books and poems and plays for people who will, an audience that will pay. And writing for pay, does it mean writing for the lowest standard of taste or a higher standard of taste? And so Emerson was, and Thoreau were often critical of uh, a culture that seemed to pander and to reinforce the general public's positive opinion of itself rather than to criticize them and to, to, to write in a way that people would have to reach for something higher. I'm, I have to ask, um, the, the sort of ideas that uh, swirled around the transcendentalists, uh, this you know, intense connectedness to nature, uh, everyone has a shared divinity, um, put in less eloquent, eloquent terms, it, it all sounds very hippy-dippy. Uh, were these guys doing drugs at all? Uh, no, but it sounds like you have uh, baby boom parents. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they weren't. In fact, uh, there was they, both Thoreau and Emerson were pretty clear. You know, th you get high on nature, right, and not on nature's mushrooms. Interesting. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I just was curious. Had to ask. Um, and, and speaking of Harvard, by the way, one of the things and and this. Um, this education movement that was sweeping across the uh, the country at the time, the Lyceum movement and Emerson's giving all these public lectures. One of the things that was shocking to me as I read your book is the, the quality of literature that like common people were reading. Uh, I mean, it was not particularly uncommon or rare for people to be reading like David Hume, Scott novels. And um, did, did that surprise you at all? Um, it, not that they couldn't do that, but it just seems like today's common folk, uh, you know, and, and even educated people oftentimes don't read at all, let alone, you know, high literary stuff. So I think that the maintenance of standards of taste of a high ideal of intellectual culture however much they were associated with aristocratic regimes, nonetheless were important, in fact, for spurring students on to meet high standards. Um, you know, the best, you might say, the best kind of culture you should have is one that upholds the highest standards in maybe the era of aristocracy, but then does so in the name of democracy. So that you level up, not down. Um, you know, I would say that the, but you can't overdo it because take political debate. Newspapers at the height of the 
um, contest between Jacksonian Democrats and the Whigs. Those newspapers were often full of sloganeering. Uh, they were like Fox News and CNN. If you read the Democratic newspaper, you didn't read the, the Whig one and vice versa. And yeah, what you would learn about your partisan opponent was through what you read in your own partisan newspaper. <laughs> and so, um, you know, but all the sloganeering, the attacks, the lack of evidence that could really support them. Uh, there was a fair bit of conspiracy mongering. You know, I describe in the book the um, anti-Masonic uprising in Concord and the uh, attacks on the Masons in Concord as if they had commanded all the offices in town and were running a secret little cabal right. to enrich themselves. Um, you know, there was vote rigging. There was, um, you know, a, a collapse of decorum at town meeting. You know, had um, people shouting down, booing and hissing, longtime town leaders. So... I would hardly idealize the world of, of um, Emerson and Thoreau as one in which a lot of noble people are reading uh, Sir Walter Scott and um, sure. you know, coming to speak well at, at, at nicely appointed parties. In fact, Emerson w was profoundly critical, not only of, of the kind of popular culture I've just described, but also of the, of the parlor culture. Of people who may have read all the you know right books, but did so as part of you know a, a polite culture in which they would show just how cultivated and rarefied and refined they were, and how much better therefore than the ordinary working man. And Emerson would complain that you could never hear anybody speak in a parlor with a real voice, who would express an authentic feeling would say anything but be polite and reinforce your host's desires. You know, so in that sense, um, the parlor with its books and refined talk was as devoid of real life in Emerson and Thoreau's view as was the mass rally in which the individual was just subsumed into the huge mass of people. Yeah, fair enough. And and uh, on uh, sort of a follow up to this this point about Harvard, one of the things I thought was so interesting um, that you point about about um, uh, Thoreau, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember yep, the the, yep. the accent has slid over the generations from first to second syllable. So now we say Thoreau, but I guess back then it was Thoreau. Um, he he said he was thoroughly himself. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, uh, one of his, uh, his, his Harvard professors, I was going to say, um, sort of warned his students against, uh, in your words, uh, the temptation to withdraw from your fellows in search of truth. Of course, that's exactly what Thoreau wound up doing. Um, so what, what happened there? Um, why did he ignore that advice? Well, that was the overwhelming advice in the world he grew up in. Emerson's step-grandfather, Arthur Ripley, the minister of Concord from 1778 to 1841, uh, preached constantly on the necessity of interdependence, what I call in the book, an ethic of interdependence, a realization that we are utterly bound together to each other. Um, as Ripley once wrote to um, 
Emerson's aunt, Mary Moody Emerson, his stepdaughter, and, and said basically, why are you wanting to go off and, and, and live in the wilderness of Maine? Why not someplace settled and civilized where you don't have to listen to the um, you know, baying of wolves and the hooting of owls? Um, every, no one lives to himself and for himself, Ripley would say. Um, only a um, disgruntled hermit or a half-crazed enthusiast would say to society, I have no need of thee. Mm -hmm. um, that um, ethic that Ripley preached is the same one that you rightly quote from um, um, Thoreau's Professor Edward T. Channing. No one lives to themselves. You know, no man is an island. No man lives alone. It's interesting, in a sense, we could say, well, duh, isn't that obvious? Why do you have to keep saying it? Yet, this is a society that enforced that ethic over and over again. Uh, and so a great many people who would have accepted with Emerson Thoreau that you can worship God in nature outdoors just as readily or more so than in, inside a meeting house, who would have agreed on um, the need for greater equality in society, for meaningful work. They would have accepted all of that, but they saw the transcendentalists as selfish and antisocial. So they saw many people were sympathetic to the critique of society that Emerson Thoreau laid out and were drawn to the notion of a God in nature. But always felt that you would have to realize that possibility in service to your fellow human beings, not apart. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So the, the last uh, sort of question I wanted to ask you, and um, it's a very general question, and you have a very, um, I think at this point, you probably have um, a great perspective on this as a historian, um, but particularly as someone who has done sort of these like sweeping social histories. Um, I'm, I'm curious, why do you think it is that like, it seems like genius tends to cluster um, in certain times and places like Concord, Massachusetts, uh, but also, you know, like the Harlem Renaissance in the early 20th century, uh, 15th century Florence, you had, you know, Michelangelo, Leonardo, et cetera. Why does this happen? Um, do you have any idea? I don't know if you've been reading what I've been writing, but in the next big idea club, um, I did a submission that's a book bite with them on precisely this question. Why is it that in history periodically, one place will become an international center of ideas and culture and literature? Um, you know, in one sense, these things are accident. Emerson went to Concord. It was his ancestral home. His uh, grandfather had been there and now his step-grandfather. And he could date his clerical forebears to the back to the beginning of the town. Thoreau is a native son of Concord. But actually beyond that, the Alcott's are newcomers. Hawthorne rents for a while, leaves, then finally comes back, buys a property. Um, a whole variety were attracted to Emerson come for time, come and go. So we could say that's partly accident. 
We could also say it's prepared by history. Concord was the first town in English North America settled in the interior beyond tidewater. It was a, a staging ground for military expeditions in the 17th century. It was a market town. It was a it was a place where Massachusetts, the legislature faced with smallpox epidemics in Boston, came out and uh, reassembled and conquered. So there's also a kind of determinism of place. It's close to Boston and Cambridge. And um, crucially, it's where the revolution had started. And the people who live in Concord um, really were intent on, on building up its place in American history as the birthplace of the American independence. So then you've got a whole lot of people invested in promoting the place. Um, Emerson, third of all, really wanted to build a village of intellectuals, of thinkers and writers. He had in mind something like the Lake District of Britain. Um, and so he was always recruiting people. He tried to get Thomas Carlyle to come to America and live close by. And I think that's, again, really interesting. So here's Emerson, the spokesman of individualism, who isn't going off to be on his own apart from people, but seeking to bring other thinkers in his orbit, where people could have both their own solitude and privacy and enjoyment of nature, but minds could play up against one another. It each could inspire the other. Um, and so his individualism in that sense always has a social dimension because he can never really imagine being alone without an audience and fellow thinkers to rub up against. Well, on that note, um, I think it's a good note to end it on. Uh, Robert, uh, the transcendentalists and their world, the Minutemen and their world, uh, is there anything else that people uh, should know before we go here? No, they can just search themselves and find the divine light within. Exactly. Um, which is the title of a book and, and not uh, a spiritual quest that you are <laughs> telling people exactly. to embark upon <laughs> right. for, for clarity. Um, Robert, thank you once again for your time. Okay, thank you. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. Great question. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to Robert Gross, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.